Welcome to Candid Conversations with Pamira, where we aim to unlock insights into how iconic brands and digital pioneers have achieved success and built loyal followings all over the world. Across this series, we sit down with business leaders from within the Pamira community to, via open and honest conversations, explore their careers and the businesses they helped build. I'm Tara Alhadef, co-head of Pamira's consumer team, and today I will be chatting to Maureen Shakay. I've known Maureen for many years, and we are very fortunate to have her as a long-standing senior advisor to our consumer team. Maureen's career journey has followed the intersection of creative and commercial, and we're going to talk more about this theme later. She started at L'Oreal, then spent many years at The Gap, before moving to Chanel, where ultimately she became CEO from 2007 to 2016. She was the first female CEO of Chanel, and also the first non-family member CEO. During her nine years as CEO, she took the Chanel brand from two and a half billion euros of revenue to nine and a half billion euros. And crucially, the brand has continued to flourish since then, which is the mark of a great leader, of course, the endurance of success after them. Today, Maureen has a fantastic portfolio of board roles. From my point of view, most importantly of all, she chairs the board at Golden Goose, which is, of course, one of our portfolio companies. But she also serves on the boards of Caring Group, Canada Goose and Credo, the clean beauty retailer. So you can see she really is at the heart of the luxury industry and at the heart of some of the most exciting brands of today. Maureen's also a published author. Her book is called Beyond the Label, Women, Leadership and Success on Our Own Terms. And it is packed full of insights about brand management, but also about authentic leadership. So as you can see, there is a lot for us to talk about. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you, Tara. It's great to be talking to you today. So I rattled off some of your professional achievements and titles that have been honestly nothing short of amazing. But behind every CEO and every fancy CV, there's a real person. And that's really the point of this podcast. So I would like to start on a more personal note. Can you share with us what some of your biggest motivations in life are? And you know, if you step back and look at the common themes behind the decisions you've made and the roles you've had, what do you observe about what motivates you? Yeah, I mean, I think I've had three great loves other than personal loves um, or, or human loves, I would say, in my life. And those have been the love of telling stories, stories in general, beauty and creativity. You know, I'm an introvert, which Tara, I don't know if you know that about me. I, I, I put on a good act as an extrovert. A very good act. But I'm really an introvert. So from a really young age, I love to read. And so I developed this early love of stories. And also, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about this, but I had a young obsession with France. By the age of 16, I was absolutely obsessed with the idea of France, everything French, food, the culture, the language. I wanted to be French. Um, And so I think that culture really brought me into this other love of beauty and of art. And then during my years at L'Oreal as a marketer, I realized that what really intrigued me about the business wasn't so much the charts and the graphs and the numbers and the analytics, but it was the creativity and how creativity really drove consumer desire. And do you feel like you've known, with the clarity that you just gave me, you've known that these are the things that motivate you and drive you all the way through, or is this clear with the benefit of hindsight? I think it's clear with the benefit of hindsight. I mean, having written the book, I think really helped me identify some of those red threads that have continued from a very young age all the way through to my professional career. 
so the book, I, I wanted to get that in early. So I'm glad you've, you've raised that. You wrote the book, I think, right after you left Chanel. And as I said, it wasn't the usual CEO biography. I, th I found it much more personal and therefore interesting and touching and stayed with me more than your average sort of CEO book. Could you just share with us what made you write the book at that moment in time? You know, it's, it's funny. I actually started to write the book before I left the company because we were doing, and I led this initiative, which was called Active and Conscious Leadership. And it was a really new way of thinking about leaders and leadership. And it was so effective and it started to shift the culture of the company. So I wanted to write about that because I felt like I had a responsibility to share that with other companies so that other companies could engage in similar types of things. But as I got into writing the book, I started realizing that that form of leadership, that philosophy started early in my life and was something that actually formed me and shaped me as a leader myself. And so I thought, I'm going to tell a little bit more of my personal story and the journey that I was on myself. And I also mentored a lot of people along the way and still do. And for me, the book was a way of scaling the mentorship a bit because, you know, you can't mentor everybody who calls you. Mm -hmm. But I figured if I could write some of these things down, there was a way I could share my experiences and that might help other leaders. Active and conscious leadership. Just say a bit more about the philosophy and the concept that you were trying to share. Yeah, I think, well, I, sh I should start with a bit of a story um, on that Please. one. I got to Chanel in 2003 at first and then took over being the CEO in 2007. I had a team of 10 men. I was the only woman and I was 40. They were all over 50. They were all experts in the luxury industry. Uh, most of them had been at Chanel for 20 years. They were all European. <laughs> and here, here mm -hmm. I am, this young American woman. My claim to fame is selling $5 t-shirts off the back of a Chevy truck in Old Navy. I mean, that was really what I got known for. So they didn't really want me there. And I don't think I had any credibility to sit at the head of that table. And I realized pretty quickly that what I had learned, everything I'd learned about leadership, kind of the command and control, let's have a vision, a strategy, you know, rally the teams to get behind it. That wasn't going to work. This team didn't want that. It probably didn't need that really. So I really changed tactics and decided to let go of a lot of the things that I'd learned about leadership and just listen, sit at their side of the table and really understand what they needed, what they wanted, where the business had been, what the culture was. So then I could move forward. And so active and conscious leadership started in a way with my own experience of realizing that in some ways when we're faced with the unknown, we have to let go of the things we know. Around 2010, the internet was exploding. Social media was coming on strong, which actually, believe it or not, and I know this is difficult to believe because we see it as an asset now, that really threatened us as, as a luxury purveyor. Millennials who wanted things that we didn't offer like, you know, eco-consciousness and, and the sort of social requirements we hadn't been thinking about. And then there was globalization, which put a ton of pressure on our business. So we were all faced with this unknown situation. I realized that I needed to come up with a way for all of us to face the 21st century and to face these unknown business issues that would be at hand. So that's how active and conscious leadership came to be born. And the philosophy really was about introducing things like deep listening and empathy and collaboration and flexibility, things which people called at the time feminine leadership qualities. I don't think they're gendered. I think they're 21st century leadership qualities. 
But the idea was to really integrate that into our everyday behaviors and activities so that we could work faster, be more innovative and more collaborative. Wow. So ahead of your time, and I just wish I could have been a fly on the wall of this male, slightly older French group uh, listening to you talk about empathy and yeah, yeah, it was quite a thing. <laughs> You've already said so many things that I want to come back to in the conversation, but how long did it take you to have an impact with those kind of concepts? Well, I had a really funny false start that I should probably just <laughs> talk about right now. So I get this idea in my mind that this is the way that we're going to be able to go forward in the future. I need to shift the culture of the company. And uh, it was the month of July. And I decided, I, you know, I'm impatient. <laughs> so I wanted to get this thing done right away. July is notably the worst month in Europe to get anything done, as you know. The, everybody's about to close. They're rushed to finish whatever they, they're doing. And they're, half the head is already on vacation. But I said, we've got to do this in July. I hired a consultant from California for my mostly French team. By the way, by this point, I had added women. And we had made already some shifts in our infrastructure and even in our behaviors, but we still weren't quite there. Hired a California team, pulled my team into a dusty ballroom somewhere in Paris. It was raining that day, which wasn't my fault, but still. I brought my team outside to do those kumbaya, you know, team exercises that everybody hates usually. Wow. But they were having none of it. And then I got inside the ballroom, stood up on my podium and said, we need more feminine leadership skills to my mostly male team, empathy, deep listening, collaborate. You know, <laughs> obviously, you, you can imagine what happened. They pretty much kicked me out of the room. I left that meeting and realized I'd made a huge mistake and that I needed to push a reset button, which meant I wrote my team, all each of them a letter and saying, uh, you know, I still believe that these are the right qualities. Clearly, I went about this the wrong way. And I'd like to ask you some questions and spend some time listening to what you want and what you care about for the future of our company, for the culture, for the business. So I had a team of 20 people at that point, and I spent an hour and a half plus with each member of the team, really gathering their feedback. And then in October, we came together, and that's when we created the active and conscious leadership journey. So it was a long process even to get it going. We ended up being in that work for at least a year just with the 20 of us. And then when we were done with that, that year, the 20 leaders loved what they were learning so much and how they had started to shift that they wanted to do it for their direct reports. And then their direct reports wanted to do it for their. So it ended up going on for a few years. And by the time I left, we had 600 people who had gone through the work. Wow. I love that story because what I was thinking when you were saying it, it's almost, it made me think of the, you know, go backwards to go forwards. Like it's okay to fail. Your first attempt didn't land. You know, you took a bit of a risk and maybe it didn't work the first time, but that's okay. Like you got there eventually. So it just reminds me of those, that, that enduring lesson of take a bit of risk and it's okay to fail. It's worse not to try. Totally. 100%. But I'm imagining that was a low moment when you felt ejected or rejected. Oh by my the goodness. I, I remember the moment I just, because we actually had planned an offsite in September. And I remember the moment that I decided I had to cancel everything and start over. I was actually getting acupuncture. <laughs> I was so stressed out. And I just had this moment. I'm just I've made a mistake, you know. I've got I've got to correct this. It was a great lesson for me. I think on, you know, you've got to I mean it sounds so trite, but you've got to walk the walk. You've got to embody the leadership that you hope that your teams will embrace. And from the beginning I sort of had that separation of, oh, I'm on one end and they're on the other. And no, I needed the work. I needed to be in that leadership journey as much as they did. And that was a real learning for me. 
Okay, so we've jumped deep into Chanel and I have so many things I want to cover there, but let's just take a step back and I wanted to take us back to L'Oreal. Tell us about how you ended up in the world of beauty in Paris and you know what the decision-making you were making as a young 20-something-year-old, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's a funny story. I graduated from college with a degree in literature, so focus on film and theater as literature because, as I said, I love stories. Had no idea what I was going to do after college, and I did know one thing. <laughs> I knew that I needed to go back to France. Somehow, somewhere, that was all I cared about. And as a matter of fact, in the interim, I ended up going to take the LSAT Mm -hmm. to become an attorney. My dad is an attorney, was an attorney. He's retired now. But I sat down to take the test. I hadn't studied. And I was was really studious as a a young person. (laughs) I hadn't studied, hadn't bought the big tome that you needed to buy. I just went in thinking, I'm just going to try this, whatever. Anyway, I get there and the words are just spinning in front of me. I have no idea how to answer these questions. I think I answered three questions before I raised my hand and had the proctor come over and said, I'm out of here. I'm done. I'm not taking this test. I don't want to be a lawyer. And that's when I knew I just had to get to Paris. And I was very lucky because I had lived there as a student and I had one of the few roommates that one can have because at the time, the notion of having a roommate wasn't even there. And her uncle was, I think, the CFO of L'Oreal, and he was able to get me an internship. And so I got to meet my dream and move to Paris. And so moving all the way across the ocean to Paris at, at, at a young age, was that intimidating? Did you feel like a fish out of water or was it actually like coming home because you were so in love with Paris and France? I think a little bit of both. I have this feeling when I'm in Paris that it is my home sometimes, mm. um, you know, whether it's even you know, things that people find displeasing about Paris, like the smell of the subway. I love that smell. There's something, it's almost like I I feel like that is home. But on the other hand, walking into a company, I mean, I spoke fluent French, but still I had to learn business French. Mm. L'Oreal is quite, you know, an iconic company coming in there as a trainee and trying to learn everything. They have a fairly great training program and they send you out on the road to sell L'Oreal products so you can really be in touch with the consumer. I was really excited because a lot of my colleagues were going to the south of France and to Burgundy and Bordeaux. I ended up in the north of France in the Ch'ti, <laughs> which is the coal mining region. But it, even then, it was, a, it was a great adventure. But yes, intimidating when you know I had to get up at seven in the morning into this fog, go to the hypermarket where I was selling studio line gel to the guy who was buying frozen peas. Not the romantic version of Paris. That- no, and they're kind of funny for a young yeah. American. Yes. And so what is it about France and luxury you know, of the world's biggest luxury brands are controlled by the, the two big French groups? What is it about France and the appreciation and understanding of brand building? I think for whatever reason, and I don't even know that this is a stereotype, it, I think it has to do with history and the culture of the, of the country. There's a great appreciation for beauty. And there's a way that the French slow down and take time and take in beauty. And so the details of everything are important to them. Mm. I think even about my early days living with a French family in the south of France, I did that when I was 16 because I was so obsessed with with the culture. I remember eating goat cheese in France. And our version, American version of goat cheese is like the mushy stuff that you spread on bread not this, just they were these three discs and one was beige, one had like a light gray color and one was darkened and black. And my French mother explained to me the process that you have to have when you eat goat cheese, which is start mm. with the one that's lighter, 
because you're, if you start with the darker one, your palate will be overwhelmed and you won't be able to taste the lighter one. So just really this, this incredible detail and understanding of the sensuous or sensual pleasures of life, I think is unique to the French culture. Things you didn't think you were going to hear on the Pamira podcast. How do we I know, cheese? Right? <laughs> one of the things that's always struck me about you, Maureen, all the years we've known each other is your ability to do beauty and apparel, to high and low and mid. And, you know, at L'Oreal, you were working at a big established engine, I suppose. And at The Gap, you were going there to do some new things. And at Old Navy, you you built up and scaled. So just the variety of what you've been able to do. Has that been a conscious path, like looking for something new every time? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because I don't think it's been conscious to find things that are unique. What it's been about for me is finding things that I deeply care about and finding things that speak to my heart in a way. So if I think about going to San Francisco after working at L'Oreal and getting that first job at The Gap, the story is kind of funny because I came out of L'Oreal thinking I was a marketer. I had three years of marketing experience. I know marketing. I want a job as a, as a you know, product manager somewhere. Unfortunately, we moved to San Francisco because it was beautiful, and we didn't realize that actually there weren't that many consumer product companies at the time there other than Clorox and Del Monte. <laughs> now, I'd been in the beauty business, and I couldn't really see myself going on photo shoots for toilet bowls. It just did not seem like it was going to be fun. I did actually interview there, and they didn't hire me anyway. So, But I was walking down Market Street in San Francisco, and there was a poster of Miles Davis, great jazz musician. His head is in his hands. He's got this soulful look. And at the bottom of the poster, it says Gap. And I'm like, wow, when I left, and Tara, you're too young for this, but Gap used to sell Levi's and records. It was not a great company. And I thought, well, wait a minute, this is so cool. I'd been in France and had this appreciation for jazz through the art director who, with whom I'd become very close. And I'm like, this is so cool. This guy has a black t-shirt on. He's Miles Davis. He's so famous, but yet he looks kind of like he's being himself in this t-shirt. What a great marketing message. I want to go market the gap. So I sent my resume in and um, this is snail mail days. And I got a response back and I said, I want to market the gap. They said, we don't have a marketing department. That's advertising. You're a merchant. I was like, I'm a what? I don't know. I don't like to sell things. <laughs> hmm. They said, no, no, you're a merchant. And they explained what that was. So I think it's been a, a meeting between my heart and the opportunity that's come about. Because at each, at each phase, it's things that are a little unusual, but it's not because they're unusual that I'm going towards them. It's because something's speaking to me in those, in those different instances. I love that. The, what you're saying about Miles Davis and Gap and how unexpected that was reminds me of something you often say about Golden Goose, obviously a brand that you and I know and love and work on together, which is the power of the unexpected. Like when a brand does something you don't expect it to do, the emotional impact that that creates. Yeah, that's just one of the insights you've shared around that board table that really, really stayed with me as a powerful I mean, you can call it a marketing tool, but it really, it's just, it's psychology. Like you remember things that are unexpected. So let's do a couple of thoughts on that time at The Gap and Old Navy. I think you were there at the very early days of, of Old Navy, right? And were part of a great growth journey there. A lot of people might not know the growth journey of, of that brand. Could you just share that story and what, why it succeeded? Yeah. I mean, speaking of, you know, doing things that are unexpected, <laughs> You know, this was a brand that when I started with Old Navy, it didn't actually have a name. We had 35 mm. loser stores that we inherited from the Gap that had become outlets. So, you know, they were selling defects and lower price products. 
and this is pre-H&M being so big, pre-Target's turnaround. So you have to kind of put this in the context. This is about 1990, I guess, two or three. We had identified that there was a market for people who really love fashion, wanted beautiful clothing, but either didn't want to spend the money or couldn't spend the money on it. And so the idea was, could we, with all of our expertise in sourcing and in product design, product development, could we provide beautiful products, interesting products, fashion products to this level of the market? So it started out as taking over these locations that no one wanted. And then we ended up realizing that we could do this. It, it, it took off. I mean, it was like wildfire as soon as we started. We ended up taking over or deciding that we would go into strip malls because the rents were cheap. We could build out stores that were fun and interesting. So we had concrete floors and like I said, you know, old antique Chevy trucks in the stores. We did things that were crazy. Like we opened our first store on 6th Avenue. We closed down 6th Avenue and hired the Rockettes to march down 6th Avenue, wow. which was amazing. No one had thought of that. Or hiring Carrie Donovan, who was like the doyen of fashion at the time, to write an article about Old Navy in the New York Times each week. So we were doing things that just were really different from the rest of the market. And it it grew, I think we did, it was $5 billion in five years. Then, of course, H&M came out. Then Target started doing their turnaround and that's when, when it became a little bit more difficult, more competitive. Yeah. I mean, $5 billion in five years, and that's before the internet and you know social media, which have helped things scale so much faster. What was it like to be on that rocket ship? Exhausting. <laughs> no, it was, it was exhilarating and exhausting. I think, you know, for me, it was some of the best career years I had because the company was growing, but I was as an executive, I was also growing. So I started off, Jenny Ming, who was the then president and became CEO, hired me to do kids. I had no experience in kids. I had one assistant and one associate merchant, and I was supposed to come up with the whole kids line. And I'll, I'll never forget the first season. We had ordered all of our shorts with one supplier out of Taiwan through our Hong Kong office. We were doing faxes at the time. So we were sending faxes back and forth. And I'll never forget, it was a maybe like February or March, I got a fax from the Hong Kong team that said, this, this vendor prefers to pass. I'm like, uh, what do you mean? That's my whole boy's short assortment. They prefer to pass. They're just not going to make the shorts. So we basically had a season where we didn't have any boy's shorts for the middle of summer. But that's just kind of what it's like to be in a startup. These things happen. And despite all that, it kept growing. But I was growing. So I went from there to be running women's to running merchandising, planning, and production. So it, I was growing with the company, which was ex extremely exciting, but I also had a baby during that time. So it was quite a ride. So we've already talked about Chanel. Let's let's get into that a bit, a bit more. It's a famously private company, obviously family held. So just tell us a bit about how you came to be there. Yeah, it's really interesting because it actually, I got the call while I was at Old Navy and a, a recruiter had called me for a job, another job, actually it was American Eagle. And I said, oh, I'm super happy at the Gap. I was, things were going well at Old Navy. I love the company. I was, my family was happy in San Francisco. So I said, don't call me unless you have something that I can't refuse. And a few months later, he called me and said, I think I have something you're not gonna be able to refuse. I'm like, oh, come on. I don't think there's anything out there that good. And so he said, no, it's a French privately held company in the luxury sector. Well. At the time, I, you could do the math, there were only two privately held French luxury companies. There was Hermes, but their, I think their debt is actually was actually publicly traded, and Chanel. So I quickly deduced that it was Chanel. 
And I started meeting with them, I guess, while I was at Old Navy, but the courtship was a year long. So I interviewed on and off for a year. And I think part of it was they're trying to ascertain whether or not I was obviously I was the right fit for the company. And it wasn't so much about, obviously, I didn't have any experience in luxury. So it wasn't so much about that, but it was about for them, one, knowing the French culture and speaking the language. I did that by then. I was also married to a Frenchman. So I had a lot of experience with the culture. But I think more than that, it was about the value that I put on creativity. We at Chanel really believed, and they still do today, that creativity leads. And being able to figure out how to work with creative people, how to give the space, the freedom, and everything that creative people need to to do their jobs uh, was really important to them. So I think that that courtship and the length of that was us trying to figure out, was this right for both parties? So I, I happen to know that after a one and a bit year courtship, you then had this amazing concept of a three-year training program to becoming CEO. So it was it was like a really, <laughs> you know, talk about long time horizons. Yeah. So <laughs> when I took the job, the owners said to me, for the first year, we want you to put a piece of tape on your mouth. We don't want you to give any opinions. We don't want you to do anything, actually. All we want you to do is listen and learn. And of course, I could ask questions, which I like to ask questions. So fortunately, I had that. But basically, for a year, I went to Paris and um, I met with everyone in the company from finance to creative to marketing to production. I mean, I, I was everywhere. I traveled around the world to see the boutiques, to meet with the people in the offices. And I, I think it was a, an amazing idea because for me, not only did I get to learn about the culture of the company, but I created connections with people that I don't think I would have done had I just come in and tried to run the place. Then I moved back to the States and they wanted me to run an operating business for two years. So I ran the US company for two years before actually becoming CEO. And it shows to what degree they're committed in some ways to being a luxury company. So that is a luxury to be able to do that. And for me, it was critical. It, I don't know that I would have been able to be in the job had I not done that. Yeah, that's why I'm interested in because I think it's it really shows the time horizon yeah. that, that they were thinking about. And did they, and here I'm just curious to learn, did they communicate? Did everybody know you were going to be CEO? It was kind of the worst kept secret in the company. I mean, it was, it was supposed to be secret, but I think people knew when they saw this person who came for a year to do nothing and ask questions and then go to the US. And in a way, I think that was really effective to kind of let people know without actually putting it out there yet. And also they probably were testing me. I think to a certain degree, they wanted to be sure that I could do the job before actually taking that title. That's why I find it amazing. After a one-year courtship, you had a three-year interview. I know. And not many people would agree to do that. Yeah. You said earlier, I think you said when you were giving that story at the beginning, you said about how you had no credibility in that room with your direct reports. I mean, obviously you had credibility, otherwise you wouldn't have been in, in the room. So you, you've just mentioned that you thought they saw in you, you know, your appreciation of creativity and, and beauty. There's a lot of people in the world who appreciate beauty and creativity. And I know you, so I know there's something unique in how you bring that all together. But what do you think they were able to see that brought you into that? Opportunity. I mean, you know, I do. I do think really deeply understanding the French culture was a was mm. a huge factor. It's not just speaking the language, although I'd say that speaking the language is a form of really understanding the culture if you speak it well, because you're 
in order to speak a language in Tara, I don't know if you speak a second language, you probably do. Sort of. <laughs> Actually, to speak well, it requires letting go of the language that you know. So, mm, yes, which means you're actually diving into that that cultural context. And I think that was really important to them that I would deeply understand the culture because it, even though it's a global company, its essence is French, and that's an important part of the brand. So I think that, in combination with the true respect that I had and I have still, obviously for the creative people and what they can do. It's one thing to say that, it's another thing to lead with that and and ensure that creative is always out front. You make decisions differently when you're looking at the business that way. You're not always going back to your data, your facts, but a lot of times you're looking at how to think about what creative can do and what kind of desire it can draw. Yes, a lot of people love creativity and beauty it's another thing to manage it and, to, and yes. to know how to use that for the company. And can you give an example in any of the companies that you've worked with, it doesn't have to be Chanel, but it could be, of in practice what that looks like? Yeah, I think, I mean, just a very s- simple example is we spent at Chanel millions of dollars for each fashion show that we did. And you, and you remember some of those extraordinary fashion shows that Karl Lagerfeld put on, whether it was a iceberg in the middle of the Grand Palais or whether it was shopping. Yeah, I remember he did the, the whole hypermarket, incredible sets. Those, the, the cost of those normally, if you, if you tried to calculate the return on investment, you'd have a hard time doing that. But I think, you know, Carl used to have this expression that I loved, which is money goes out the window, comes back through the front door. Um, <laughs> believing in that and allowing for that, uh, as opposed to trying to to put that in a box, no, no, we can only spend a million and a half on this on this show, is one of the ways that that happens. You have to trust that that creative person knows what they're doing and, and knows how to attract the customer and bring the money back through the front door, as it were. Yeah, that resonates a lot. And what I find, you know, obviously I'm a private equity person and uh, here we are on a Pamira podcast. So, you know, the question you ask is like, does that mean that private equity investors shouldn't or can't really invest in luxury because of the timeframes and the lack of ROI and analysis on on that kind of decision. And yet you do see luxury brands that have been, so you've got the family ownership model of Chanel at its extreme. You see the public ownership model being successful with LVMH and Caring and so on. And we have seen great private equity success in the luxury market as well. Valentino. Valentino for us, Montclair for others, Golden Goose now <laughs> together for us. Do you think the ownership model matters and makes a difference? I think what matters actually, I think it's easier to do what Chanel did and does, and even to do to a certain degree what private equity firms do than it is when you're already publicly traded, right? There's so many more sort of deadlines in a sense when you're publicly held. That said, what I've learned, and I've only been on the caring board for a very short time, and just in conversations, what I've understood is they give a lot of power to their creative people to invent the brands. I mean, even more power in some ways than Chanel did to Karl Lagerfeld. They have their creatives doing boutiques and advertising and you know every part of the brand, uh, image part of the brand. I think that that model's not only possible, I think it's the model that's right for the luxury industry. But I think it's you know it's an advantage if you're privately held, basically. 
you don't have to move quite as fast and you have the advantage of time. And so the other theme that, you know, often comes up when you're growing these types of brands is the heritage versus modernity and relevance, right? And I think Chanel's one of the brands that's balancing that the most effectively. I find the topic fascinating. You know, how do you respect the heritage of a brand, recognize that it is often the brand's greatest asset? It's an interesting thing. When I first got there, I had this term that I used and I, I used it throughout my time there and that that was depth and dynamism. So I used to say that mm. all good luxury brands have depth, meaning they have a heritage, they have a history, they have a story. Even if they're newer luxury brands, they have a story. And you've got to keep that part of the brand. You, you can't ever abandon that. But at the same time, they have to be dynamic, right? So they have to continue to reinvent, to recreate, to show innovation. But I think mostly it's about understanding the essence of the brand. So for example, with Chanel, and it's it's kind of a funny story too. When I first got there, no one wanted to talk about Gabrielle Chanel. Carl had said she's the dead designer and we don't want to talk about her. But you know, I got there, she was an iconoclast. She was a feminist. She took women out of long dresses and corsets and high necklines and liberated them, gave them clothes that they could wear. I mean, if we have jackets today, it was a lot of her inspiration from the Duke of Windsor. Like she, she really changed fashion as we know it. So I felt like we needed to talk about her story, but we needed to do that in a contemporary way. So often what we did is instead of sort of tomes of history, you know, we did things like we had a, a thing called Inside Chanel, which was a way of telling her story digitally in a very kind of modern context. And then we did Outside Chanel, where we found women who... In, incarnated or embodied Chanel's spirit. Or we did mobile art. We had Zaha Hadid design this like, it looked almost like a spaceship with inside, there were different art pieces from great artists who would interpret the Chanel handbag. So all these are ways of talking about history without actually sitting in just the historical facts. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, reading a history book and watching, I don't know, The Great on TV, you know, which is a kind of some sometimes true history of Catherine the Great, it, you know, something that actually takes it into a really contemporary context, gives you the feeling and the essence of the brand without sticking to, you know, just a, a, a straight up history. That's so interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of, because, you know, another Pamira portfolio company, as you know, has been Dr. Martin's and that brand's got tons of heritage and history and iconicity. And I remember someone once saying, you know, has the music industry and all these music legends wore the boots and someone once saying, like, you need to make sure the stores don't feel like a museum. For sure. You know, nobody wants to be in a museum. You need to find a way of drawing on your iconicity and history and heritage whilst feeling relevant. And I think as a consumer, you know when a brand's getting that right. Like you feel it. You can feel the history, but you feel fresh and relevant. And in the examples you just gave yeah. illustrate that. But it's difficult to know how the brands are achieving that. You know, the other way I think great brands do this is, and I think Doc Martens does this, does this well as, as well, is how you work on your icons. So I think, you know, with Chanel, it was kind of beautiful because she had created a design language. We called them the brand codes, mm. whether it was matelassé, which is, you know, the diamond stitching, chains, tweed, pearls. She had a language of design. So Carl could take that language and refresh it and make it new, but the language was still hers. So I think there, there's something about having those icons or a code within the brand that then you constantly can refresh. I mean, I see that right now with Bottega Veneta. They do that really well with their interest 
God, I can never pronounce that, but the woven uh, leathers. So I, yeah. I think it's a that's another way of keeping your brand fresh while referring to history to a certain degree. Yes. But then it, it's so delicate and nuanced, isn't it? Because you can get it wrong. I mean, the Burberry check on the scarves of the 90s, you know, you can overdo it if you do it too simplistically. Well, it's funny because when Carl took over Chanel in the, in the early 80s, he did this thing with all the codes where he made them almost bigger than life. So he hmm. it, it almost made fun of them in a way, mocked them. I, I say that loosely, but it restarted the brand. It brought the codes into something really interesting. So, you know, he, it was big logos and, you know, sort of in your face. And I thought that was clever, you know, sort of almost take them lightly in a sense, not take them so seriously. Yeah, that's fun. Okay, we're talking about lots of the things that Chanel did well and has continued to do well and you were a crucial part of. Did you ever doubt the path you were on there or the strategy? Yeah, I mean, often, obviously, I think <laughs> when you're leading a company like that, you always have doubts about things. But I have one kind of funny story that I think you'll appreciate. And this is how we handled number five, the fragrance. So, you know, the sales on number five were pretty flat while I was there. We did a, an ad campaign with Nicole Kidman and we got a temporary blip up. But the long and the short of it was the fragrance was selling to older women. It didn't smell fresh to the new generation. So because it was such an iconic fragrance, we didn't want to touch the formula at the time. Although I would argue probably the bigger issue was the formula, but instead we decided we're going to do a really interesting ad campaign. We're going to change it up. We've been doing these ad campaigns with leading ladies for since Catherine Deneuve, you know, under Nicole Kidman. Let's try a man. And this was an idea that the art director had had. He had passed away, but we decided that we were going to do this finally. We were going to try a man. And we decided to get Brad Pitt as the spokesperson for number five. Now, he's an amazing actor, gorgeous man. This, this should be fantastic. The problem was, is he had just come off a movie. I think it was called World War Z. He had long hair, a beard. He wouldn't shave. He wouldn't cut his hair. And we just had problems like that from the beginning. I mean, it was difficult. And it turns out we had him read a poem. This was like our big thing. We we're going to regenerate number five. We, we did get a lot of hits on, on the internet when we first put it out, but not necessarily with good results. I think we were spoofed on Saturday Night Live, which I don't know, you can take as either being really good or really bad. Some people say any publicity is good publicity. At the time, I felt not great about it. So I think this is a good example of, you know, yes, there were, t there were wobbles. Um, that was a wobble. It ended up being fine. I mean, number five is such a great fragrance. And the years after, I think we had Giselle and, and things got back on track. But it, at the end, I think, you know, it was, a, it was a strategic miss, let's say. One of the reasons that, you know, you know this, but we like investing in the right brands, not all brands, uh, Pamira is the notion that it takes a lot to kill a great <laughs> brand or an icon, iconic product or an iconic brand, right? You can deal with like as an investor, it's an attractive feature of these businesses that not everyone appreciates that you can stomach some wobbles and the brands endure. Yeah, for sure. And they come back. You know, you look at brands that have gone into disrepair and come back. And so I think it's, I think you're right about that. So another interesting theme while you were there is the digital revolution was in its earlier days while you were at Chanel. And famously, Chanel didn't, and I think still doesn't, sell most of its products online. We're well through the original skepticism that consumers won't buy luxury online. We're obviously, you know, it's 2023. Some people spend tens and tens of thousands of dollars on luxury platforms online. So 
just touch on that decision not to sell online at Chanel and whether you feel, you know, if you were CEO today, um, is it still relevant? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a great point and it's debatable, but I think at the time, my idea and the idea of, I think in the company, we could create a dream for all, but it was a reality for few. And so my thought was mm. you could put Chanel online, the advertising, the imagery, and really get people to dream about it. But we didn't want to sell online because at the time we felt like we couldn't create a luxurious experience. And you know we were spending millions and millions of dollars on our boutiques, on our sales associates who had a ceremony of selling. I mean, the way they bring out a bag, you know, you get in the dressing room and you try on a Chanel jacket and the company will fit that for you free. You will get it tailored exactly to your body. This is stuff you can't do online. I mean, online, it's a transaction. And yet we felt so passionately about the workmanship and the care that went into our products and, and the boutique experience and the expertise of our fashion advisors. We felt that that wouldn't get across selling online. So the question now is, is that a good idea still? I mean, people sell $250,000 vehicles online. So, you know, you could argue that it shouldn't really matter. One of the dreams I always had, and I don't know that any company has still been able to do this, is could you sell to your top clients online? So that could there be a kind of club that you could, you know, subscribe to that if you were a client already, because it's convenient and there's a certain luxury and convenience to me. So being able, like, I don't have time to go, I live in Connecticut, I don't have time to go to the city, I want a Chanel jacket, I'd love to be able to get that online. And I think that the company probably does that to a certain degree because the fashion advisors have relationships with these clients anyway. But personally, I think that it's, it's okay to sell online at this point. I think that it is a luxury to be able to sit behind your screen in your pajamas and order that handbag if you want it. And I don't think it negates the beauty of the experience that you can get in a boutique. So that's just my my opinion. But um, I remember when this is early days of social media, when I first put us on Facebook and my team thought I was crazy. They said, you can't go on Facebook. It's cheap. It's going to cheapen the brand. I managed to convince everyone because there are about 10 or 15 fake accounts on Facebook with Chanel. I said, look, if we're not on there officially, everyone else will be using our name. So it just kind of shows that things evolve. And obviously now Chanel, like every other luxury brand, is on all social media. Yeah, it's back to this thing of these brands have to stay rooted in the past and tradition and heritage and protect that, but do need to evolve. Okay, so one other thing I wanted to touch on is the global nature of some of the brands you've worked with. And one question I often find myself thinking is, you know, of course, we live in an ever more globalized world and the internet and social media has broken down national boundaries and cultural boundaries. And on the other hand, everybody talks about the need to be local and, and so on. So global versus local. So are consumers more different or more the same? Because you've worked with Chanel and how the brands you sit on the boards of. And do you feel like it's more important to be centrally, globally consistent with your brand message or more important to adapt to local countries in today's day and age? The answer is yes. <laughs> um, no, in other words, I think both are true. I think, you know, a brand has to be consistent from country to country in its essence. And that's a hard thing to identify. I mean, what is a brand essence? Because that can be interpreted differently yeah. for local markets. But I think what I learned is that the most important thing is that the local teams on the ground really need to understand what the brand means. Because otherwise, you, you can't actually be local in the way that you want to or that will reflect the essence of the brand. 
And it's not easy because, you know, you're going into new countries, you have teams in particularly in countries where the teams are young and where turnover is high. Like I remember at Chanel at one point, our turnover in China was like 35% in the boutiques. So here you would train someone and they'd get to know the brand really well and then suddenly they would leave. But I do think that that's the way to be local is to have people in those markets, both in the in the corporate offices of those markets, but particularly the frontline people in the boutiques who really understand the brand so that you can do things that are local, that are still in line with the brand essence. So the answer is yes, both are true. But I always, you know, I always think when in doubt, you know, trust the brand and what it means. Yeah, that resonates a lot. I want to shift now to the theme of leadership and particularly for you and, uh, you know, authentic leadership that you that you've already touched on. You were, as I've said, the first ever female CEO at Chanel. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if you know this, I think recently women CEOs finally overtook John CEOs in the, in the S&P 500. Do you know, do you know that silly old stat? No, I think it's great, but it's, I mean, it's fun. Great meaning it's quite funny. <laughs> yeah, it's depressing and funny and great all at the same time. But can you share a few thoughts on gender and, and leadership and why is it still you know, so slow going that I'm listing that kind of a statistic. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it does have to do with how we honor different forms of leadership and how we think about, you know, the active and conscious leadership journey that we did go through brought um, to light different ways of leading because we were looking at, at our own personal leadership styles and trying to understand who we were as leaders and how we related to other people. And I think all the models for leadership are men, really. You know, when you think about it, they're, because there's so few women, we have very few women to look to as models for leadership. So we've really kind of adopted one form of leadership as being the right form. And I personally, yes, there are all the policies that you can put in place and all the gender equity things that need to happen. But more than that, we need to create environments and cultures where women and other diverse candidates feel comfortable leading. Like, you know, I'm an introvert, as, as we talked about. I like to ask questions and listen. I have a different way of leading than maybe another person. And we have to create cultures where that too works. And I think that a lot of times, and I, you know, I know this just from my own colleagues, they'll stop at a certain point in their career because they just don't feel like they're being listened to or they're being understood or they're being accepted. And that's a shame. And so I think beyond all the policies we can put in place and all the gender equity things we can do, we also need to create cultures that embrace diversity. That's a bigger task. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot longer. It does. And I think it can feel sometimes the criticism gets made that you know you get more inefficiency or slower decision making if you're working to build an inclusive and you know, diverse culture. The good thing is you get less groupthink. The bad thing is you get less groupthink. So, you know, maybe you move slower and it can feel more like wading through treacle. I mean, what would you say to that? Uh, I mean, I think some of the best ideas that came out of my team were from people who weren't actually running their businesses. So it is slower maybe, but it's also in some ways you go faster once you get those ideas. So I think about remembering that we had on our executive team, I had included some people from the creative departments because I thought it was more interesting. So even when we had business conversations, I'd get their view. And one of the people on the team was an architect. And I remember sitting in a meeting and we were kind of stuck going round and round with this problem. And he asked a naive question. And the naive question that he asked was just the right question to get us thinking differently. 
So yeah, I, I you know it may be slower, but I, it also may be more efficient in some ways. And so relatedly somewhat the family question, you obviously have a family and raised two grown daughters, I know now. Can you talk about that, you know, the juggle, the compromise? There's a bit of a story to this one because I think, because I, I love stories, but also because I think it illustrates <laughs> the struggle that I had and that I think probably a lot of women and men have, by the way. So really early on in my gap days, my husband at the time, Antoine, and I decided that we were going to each have a role in the family in a way. I would be the breadwinner because my career had started taking off a bit faster than his. And he'd stay home and take care of the kids. And, and honestly, it was really practical at the time because we didn't have enough money for a nanny. And so that was what happened. And, and you know, we, we got the normal flack from his parents and from, you know, he's Mr. Mom and from other people. And from my side, where, where's your invisible wife? Because I was tra traveling all the time. But it seemed to work. Like the, the kids seemed happy and everything seemed to be going well hmm. until I took my daughter, Pauline, my oldest daughter, college visiting. So as the story goes, we were on uh, that day, we were on Harvard's campus. I went to Yale, as you know. I'm sorry, Tara, but I, uh, I didn't really want to be there. I think I really would have rather not do that tour. And then the, the day was difficult, was hot. The tour guide wasn't the greatest. And I could see that Pauline was aggravated. I was aggravated. We went to dinner that night at this wonderful Middle Eastern restaurant in Cambridge. And um, the metzes are f floating around and I'm smelling the scents and I get my glass of wine. It, it, there was tension. And I think I said something to Pauline that I thought was like nothing. I was Oh yeah, we should we should share some stuff. And I said, Oh yeah, that's right. You don't like to share. I mean, I was like nothing. Anyway, it was as if I had lit a match and thrown it in a pile of dry leaves. I mean, she exploded. And what she said, which was just terrible, was, "You don't know me. You're never home. How could you say what I like or what I don't like, Mom? You're always in Hong Kong. You're always in in Europe. You you're just not there." And this is the first time I was hearing this, right? So, I mean, my 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 face turned red. I, I felt like my tongue was swelling in my mouth. My ears were hot. I finally got up from the table, ran to the bathroom, and I just broke down. I mean, I just lost it. And there were so many emotions at that time. It was like, you know, I was obviously sad because I felt like I had failed as a mother. I felt guilty. I felt mad. I felt angry. I'm like, wait, if we're even on this campus at Harvard at all, it's because I work so hard. And you know, that's how you would able to, you know, get there. Anyway, I get back to the table. We didn't speak the rest of the evening. It was, we just didn't speak. And we never totally resolved it. But a few months later, Pauline was in her room and she was working on her computer. I could see her beautiful green eyes. And she said, mom, can you come in here? I said, sure. And she said, I need help with my college essay. So we started talking and she came up with this great idea for her college essay. And as I left, she said, Thanks, mom. I thought, okay, I don't feel quite as bad. And then a few years later, when she actually was at Yale, she brought all her friends to see me when I'd come speak and proudly introduced me to them. And um, then finally at graduation, she wrote me this text that I probably should have kept, but I remembered it so well. She said, mom, I know you never really cooked or cleaned, but I'd rather have a mom who could help me find my first job because I helped her find her first internship. So of course, I was sad to miss those those moments, you know, and I felt terrible. I think I felt guilty. But I feel like I also feel kind of good that I gave them something else. And I gave them a model of someone who loved what they were doing, who was excited about their career. 
you know, I often think about this notion of work-life balance because everyone's trying to get to some perfection. You know, let's find the perfect work-life balance or I'm going to be the perfect mom or the perfect uh, employer, the perfect leader. But the notions of perfection hurt us because we beat ourselves up a lot. And then I feel like, you know, we're either exhausted or we're just feeling badly. So it was a really tough time and lesson for me, but I, I started to learn that you make decisions and that decisions have consequences and sometimes they're tough and you have to live with that. But I have a funny after story of that was that I was sitting in a talk like this once and oh, someone asked me, you know, Maureen, if you had to do it all over again, would you stay home or would you even stay home part time or would you do the same thing you did before? I said, no, honestly, I wouldn't change a thing. I'd love my career. It was really motivating to me. It was inspiring. And yeah, I feel terrible about missing some things, but I don't think I'd change it. And then I paused for a second and I thought about it. I'm like, you know, whether you stay at home all the time and, and every waking hour is for that kid, or whether you're there part-time and a lot of time goes to the, the kids, or you're like me and you, you work and you're, you're out in the world, one thing is common. At some point, your kids will hate you. <laughs> And I, I joke around about it, but you know, there is that m moment that your kids will at some point want to individuate. The good thing is they come back around. It is true that I think you have to make decisions that you feel good about at the end of the day and live with the, the parts that aren't so easy. Yeah, which is back to the authenticity. Thank you for sharing that story because actually it was quite hard for me to hear that story. I have to be honest, like it's a very personal story. And I think a lot of people, men and women, as you said, are wrestling with these trade-offs and worry about that having that moment in that in that restaurant. But then what you've just said just now, which is that you you might have that moment no matter what choices you make along the way, and doing it your own authentic way is really the only thing you can ultimately kind of be confident is the right decision. So thank you for for sharing that. And you'll give them something else too. Don't forget. Yes, absolutely. And so one of the things that you've said before that I really loved and stuck with me, and I, I'd, I'd love to bring out here is. You have this notion of, I think you call it like a word of the year. I can't remember exactly how you describe it. You told me once that you pick a word for the year and- You have a good memory. <laughs> uh, it was such a unique concept. So can you tell us a bit more about that? And do you, do you have a word this year and how's it going? I do. <laughs> it's so funny because, you know, there's, there's all this research that New Year's resolutions don't work. I mean, I'm sure you've read that, right? Yes. But picking a word is is a bit different because it's more like an intention. It's not a fixed goal that you've got. And it starts to work on you sort of subconsciously, whether you like it or not, I find. So it starts to guide and shape your choices, despite the fact that you're not actually thinking about it every day. So this past year, my word is actually heart. And I think the prior year, I had kind of lost my connection to a certain degree to why I was doing stuff. I was going through the motions. I had a lot of things going on, but somehow I just didn't feel like it was it was touching me in the same way. And you know, that's been such a driver for me of, of what I do. But somehow by proclaiming it this year that I want to be in my heart a little bit more, I feel like I've actually found the connection again to what I love in everything that I'm doing. I feel sort of like it renewed a sense of purpose and it's allowed me in things that I might have felt like, oh, maybe this isn't for me. I actually found the thing that the reason why I chose it to begin with in a way. And it's funny because as a result, I've been in much more interesting conversations in all the different businesses I'm, I'm in. I've been expressing myself in ways that I haven't before. And I think new opportunities have come up. So it's it's kind of great. Like, I, I, I don't want to say it just because I, I chose the word, but I do think that having that starts to work on you in a way that you don't always expect. Well, you've said the word heart. I have not to be corny, but I've loved 
this chat with you. And I think we've we've got to draw it to a close. But as always, I feel even though we've had many such conversations before, I've genuinely learned a lot actually from what you've shared. We've talked about brands, we've talked about business, we've talked about leadership, we've talked about culture, we've talked about family, we've talked about goat's cheese. So Maureen, really thank you so much for giving us this time and sharing some of your insights with us. Well, thank you for asking such great questions. It was really a pleasure to to speak into them. Listeners, thank you for joining this conversation with Maureen Chiquet. I hope you found value in it and perhaps in unexpected places. Be the first to know about future episodes by subscribing now. And to learn more about Pamira, please visit pamira.com. Thank you.